Well, yes, please do have James chapter 5 in front of you. We have reached the end of the James series, and I guess there'll be some people who normally come in the morning who feel slightly disenfranchised by the whole situation uh, because they're missing the last instalment. But uh, they can can always uh, follow up and listen to it online, so uh, not to worry. I recently um, signed up to an app called Nextdoor, Uh, And it gives you news about what's going on in your locality. So you get this sort of news feed, bulletins. It was quite uh, informative during the flooding and the rains. Uh, People were sort of chatting about which roads roads have been closed. And, you know, if you're a curious person, like I guess most of us are, when, when you see ambulances and fire engines going in a certain direction, you know, you know there'll be a little post on there saying, oh, you know, there was, a, there was an incident, and you can find out what it's, what it's about. Uh, lots of people use it for all kinds of different things. So a lot of people put requests up online. Um, you know, in our area, it's like painters, plumbers, that sort of thing. However, one couple, Jim and Alex, maybe you caught the news over this last week. They live in Philadelphia, Uh, And they made the news. Quite a lot of newspapers carried it, actually. They were using this particular app. Uh, They are expecting their first baby. So they asked the local community if they could support them with meals. And that might seem reasonable enough. But apparently, they were being a bit too demanding and entitled about the way they were requesting this help. Jim has listed 30 of their favorite recipes some of which are quite sophisticated recipes, not the kind of ingredients I would be carrying in our house. And he said that people can text him if they want to know if there's anything else that they need. If you can't cook, he says that cleaning and vacuuming would also be really nice. He says that they are quite an introverted couple. So he admits to this. And so he says he might uh, just put a cooler outside the door, and you can drop off your meals and goodies in the cooler, and he'll pick them up later. Now, you can see why (laughs) some people might think that this couple are taking liberties. Fair enough. But when I heard about the whole thing, you know, Sarah highlighted this to me uh, yesterday, and we talked about it. My first thought, you know, was, wow, those those guys could really, really benefit from being part of a church. Is that where your thoughts went? The church is incredible. Local church is, is, is the best place in the world to be looked after. It should be. It certainly should be, shouldn't it? Uh, you know, if that couple was in our church, sure, we might, we might have to set them straight a little bit about their millennial expectations. But the local church is where the best kind of support and love should be found, isn't it? It's the best community ever. And I want to challenge anyone here who's a regular part of Walton Evangelical Church to think about how blessed we are and how much even more blessed we could be as a church if we really took care of each other in practical and spiritual ways. I mean, really cared physically, spiritually. Uh, and, you know, it's actually on that theme, interestingly, and it's, it's one of very few letters that does this in, in the New Testament. It's on that sort of theme, on application theme, that James finishes his little book, his sermon. In these last verses, James talks to us about, really, you could put it under the heading of care in the church. I've slightly shoehorned the headings because it makes them more memorable. Uh, I'm, I'm breaking them up into care for yourself, care for the sick, care for the sinner, and care for the straying. 
See if you can follow it with me. So verse 13, let's, let's take a look at this. Care for yourself. Verse 13, is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Let he or she pray. Let him or her sing songs of praise. Verse 13 lists two of three states that we find ourselves in as Christians. Do you notice in these first couple of verses? States that we find ourselves in in life. First of all, are you in trouble? Are you in trouble? Is that your status? You know, your Facebook status would be, I'm in trouble. Is that your status at the moment? By trouble, James is talking about undergoing afflictions. Are you undergoing afflictions? It's the same word used in verse 10, look, when he's talking about the afflictions endured by the prophets of old. That's an afflicted life, isn't it? We talked about those trials uh, last week when we were looking at James. These prophets of old who were rejected and hated by all around them under that kind of pressure, having to live a godly life in the middle of a God-rejecting culture. Is that how you're feeling at the moment? Are you troubled? The prophets lived a very hard life, and some of us are called to do that too in the world. What are we to do? What does it look like to take care of yourself in those kinds of afflictions? He or she should pray. (laughs) It's not rocket science, is it? Prayer is actually the dominant theme. Just take a look down at this whole section. Verses 13 to 18, you will find prayer mentioned in every single verse. It just completely covers this passage. Prayer is, and make no mistake, is the powerhouse of everything that happens in our lives and everything that happens in the church. You've got an opportunity this month to come to the prayer meeting. Let's take that seriously. It's the powerhouse. It really is. I hope you're going to see that a bit tonight. But, but look at what James is saying. He says, when trials come, our first reaction should be to pray, to bring it all before God. Do you remember the story of King Hezekiah? I love the story of King Hezekiah. Well, some of the stories of King Hezekiah are brilliant, aren't they? Some of them are a little disappointing. But at his very best, there was this situation for Hezekiah where Assyria, the great superpowers sweeping down from the north, they've been wiping the floor with everyone around them, and they are coming down now to Jerusalem, and they send a letter ahead of them. And the letter basically goes along the lines of, hey, Hezekiah... Here's a list of all the countries that we've absolutely pulverized. And Hezekiah, you're next. It's supposed to make his blood run uh, run cold. And Hezekiah receives the letter. What does he do with it? Is he in trouble? Does that class as being in trouble? He's in trouble. What's Hezekiah to do? He takes the letter to the temple, do you remember? And he lays it out before the Lord. I love that image. He takes the letter and lays it out at the temple. And he prays. And he brings it to God. Are you in trouble? Lay it out before the Lord. That is the best thing you can do with your troubles. Lay them out. Are you happy? On the other end of the spectrum, says James, are you in good spirits? Are you buoyant? That's what the word means. Are you bouncing along in life? Well, if that's the case, says James, sing songs of praise. 
It's okay. You can, you can in your privacy, privacy of your own home, nobody's going to have a go at you. Just sing. Express your joy. You know, for those of us, and I, I, you know, I don't want to generalize, but from a more sort of conservative Christian background, we can have a pretty bad reputation for this, for, for not really expressing ourselves very well. But we ought to be people of emotion, shouldn't we, as Christians? Aren't they something God created that is good? To be joyful, to be sad? If there's a reason for sorrow, it's okay to express it. Mourn with those who mourn. If there's a reason for joy, show it. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. But I think the thing to observe here is that James is telling us, get get the big theme, He's telling us, whatever the situation is, whatever we're going through, whatever the state of our hearts, we are to respond Godward in all of it. Whether by prayer or by praise, it's the same thing, really, isn't it? We bring it to him. We lay it out before him. See, troubles can can draw us inwards, can't they? Take our eyes off the Lord. They can make us uh, look to our own resources, can't they, to try and find a solution. Or they can lead us down down a line where we start to suggest to ourselves that, you know, God doesn't really care, I'm going through all of this. But listen, somewhat ironically, I guess, the joyful times of life can be just as likely to draw us away from God. Isn't that fascinating? When he's blessing us, it can actually draw us away, away from him. When things are going well, we forget just how much we need him, don't we? We become presumptuous. Do you remember what James was saying about that in chapter 4? Both the good and the bad in life, then, can draw us away from God unless we learn to respond in good and bad situations, in everything, by taking it immediately to him with requests or thanksgiving. Do you do that? I mean, those of you who've got families, your kids, do you make that a habit of your family? To just something great happened. Let's just praise the Lord. Come on, let's just, just stop. Let's just praise the Lord for this. Let's be a family that sings. Maybe albeit badly. But let's praise the Lord when things go well. When we're in trouble, let's bring it straight to the Lord. What a great lesson to teach our children. Because it keeps our gaze fixed on him, doesn't it? It keeps us in a posture of humble dependence. Remember how blessed that is? Gratitude before God. That is surely the best way to care for yourself, isn't it? Bring everything to God. But James also envisions a third state in which we might find ourselves. It's in verse 14. Sick. Uh, We'll move to the next section there, to care for the sick. Have a look at verse 14 with me. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Believe it or not, I was quite looking forward to getting to these verses in James until I actually started to really try and study them and figure out what was going on here. What we have here is a couple of very highly discussed and disputed verses in the Scriptures. Uh, about which a lot of ink has been spilt and many arguments, I'm sure, have been had. But we are, let me assure you, at an advantage because we've had a run-up to these verses. If you've been coming regularly to this series in James, you've been with me as we've worked our way through the previous chapters, and that's going to stand us in very good stead. If you've missed them, then they're, they're online. Please do listen to them. 
See, these verses are fascinating and they are very important. This is the only place in the New Testament that speaks clearly about healing to ordinary Christians in ordinary local church situations. This is it. This is your guidebook right here. We ought to pay attention to it, shouldn't we? So let me just make a few initial observations before we get into it. And, and, and do keep looking down at the verse. Make sure we're in, going on the right track here. First of all, James does not envision an itinerant healing ministry or even some kind of special healing meeting. Are we good? And neither does he give instructions, very interestingly, for you to locate someone with a special healing gift. Isn't that interesting? Are you sick? Find the person with the healing. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Instead, he perhaps rather unglamorously instructs the sick individual to call for the local church elders. That's really interesting. So that's right. In our situation, you'd be looking at an appointment with Ian, Dickie, and myself. Perhaps, as far as Ian's concerned, perhaps that is slightly glamorous. But it's fairly, it is fairly pedestrian kind of instruction, isn't it? Uh, and just to finish setting the scene, the sick, by sick, that word sick there, James does not mean... Every time you have a sniffle, you'll be relieved to this, won't you, Ian and Dickie? So every time anyone's got a cough or a sneeze or a runny nose, we have to go, go a bit. No, it's not saying that. The word for sick here means feeble or weak, weakened, lacking strength. This envisioned here is an individual who cannot themselves come to get help because of their sickness, and therefore they require a visit. Someone has to go to them. If, uh, commentators say so it might also include a spiritual element. Imagine that debilitating sort of spiritual situation you might be in, where you've become despondent, where your faith is weakened, where you're despairing. And it's that last call is, please come help. It's that kind of situation. And commentators suggest that the instruction to pray over the person, do you see that? They pray over the person added to the statement in verse 14 that the Lord will raise them up, suggests the person is perhaps even confined to their bed. They're, they're, they're down. They're down and out, aren't they? What has caused the sickness? Well, James doesn't specify what has caused it. But he seems to strongly suggest that though the ailment might be physical, there's a possibility that some of it's due to unrepentant sin. Some of that might be involved. Now, we shouldn't downplay the connection between sickness and sin. After the healing of the paralyzed man, do you remember the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda? John records in his gospel account, John chapter 5, says this, Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. You see the connection? And let's not forget the Apostle Paul's warning, which we read out from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 quite often, don't we, when we have the Lord's Supper. He's writing to people about abusing the Lord's Supper, and he says this, anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself, and that is why many amongst you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. There's the connection, isn't there? 
whilst we see that connection, neither should we be too, clay, too, too quick to make a connection between those two things either. Jesus denied the connection between sin and sickness in the case of a blind man just a few chapters later on in John chapter 9 where the disciples are saying, you know, who, who sinned then, Jesus? He says, no, it wasn't him, it wasn't his parents. Neither this man sinned or his parents, says Jesus. Perhaps even more compelling, right in the immediate context, James has only just finished reminding us about the case of Job in verse 11, look, where sin has got nothing at all to do with his horrific medical condition. That's actually the whole point of Job's story, isn't it? He didn't, hasn't done anything wrong. There's a whole other reason behind his sickness. So let's not be too quick either way, but do see the connection. I just want to get that balance, see the connection. Having said all that, see, you see, it seems right to conclude that on our sickbed is a perfect time to stop and think about our lives. I think sometimes maybe God is God hitting the pause button, isn't it? When we find ourselves on a bed of sickness. To meditate on our lives, to think about sin that has not been dealt with in our lives. It's a great opportunity for that. And the reason I raise this is because James himself makes that connection in verse 15, look. He assures us that forgiveness will be granted in response to the prayer offered in faith. So what's the drill here? So we've got the elders. They've come out to this person. They're round the bedside. Once they're gathered there, what do they do? Well, it is, again, very, very simple and very unglamorous. They pray. They pray. That's what James instructs. Uh, there's not even a laying on of hands. Isn't that disappointing? We don't even do the whole sort of put the hands on them thing or rubbing hands, you know, that sort of stuff. This is the ordinary means for bringing healing. I don't know if you've ever been to a healing meeting, per se, or some sort of healing rally. But this is very different, what we have here in James. It's actually very good for us to get out of our heads all that we think we know about how God heals sometimes, and just look back at the scriptures to see what the Bible is teaching. And for the record, I do believe that God heals miraculously today, don't you? He's a sovereign healing God who loves to give good gifts to his children. Why wouldn't he heal? But prayer is the way that God sends healing. Prayer is absolutely awesome. At, at, you, remember this story from, from Mark chapter 9. As Jesus' disciples, prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have in our Arsenal. Mark chapter 9. Do you remember the story? Jesus has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration with his disciples. And they're coming down off, off the mountain. You've got Peter, James, and John, and they see a commotion down at the bottom. The other disciples who've not been with them have been trying to cast a demon out of a young boy. It's a desperate situation. And so as they arrive, the father approaches Jesus, tells him, Look, I brought my son to these guys, but they've not been able to help. None of their putting their hands on it and the oil and all of this stuff. Nothing's helped. And that's strange because they had no problem back in chapter 6 of Mark. They've been out on mission and, and they've been casting out demons left, right and centre. And Jesus himself actually has no problem here either, does he? 
He just casts the demon out. It shrieks. It leaves at his command. And so the disciples sidle up to Jesus when everything, I guess, is slightly quieter. And they ask him, perhaps sheepishly, Jesus, why couldn't we, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we just command it to leave? Why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus replies, this kind can come out only by prayer. Boys, you didn't get out the big guns. That's what he's saying, isn't it? In, in, in effect. The issue is so great, that don't go charging ahead thinking you can do it. No, 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 you need to stop. Prayer is, prayer is not some second-rate approach, do you see? Prayer unleashes the power of Almighty God. It's to enlist his help, the, the help of the omnipotent power of the universe. That's what prayer does. Now, there's some discussion also here of the use of oil. James tells us in verse 14 that the elders are to anoint the sick person with oil. What is that all about? Well, first of all, the word for anoint makes it sound like this is some kind of sacrament or religious ritual. But in fact, it really just means to apply, to apply oil. Or literally, if you wanted to, to translate it literally, a lot of commentators say, to oil him with oil. It's like an oiling going on. As one author says, you don't anoint a machine. It's the word that you use. You don't anoint a machine. You oil it. You oil a machine. It's the same sort of word being used here. There is a different word used in Greek for ritualistic anointing. That's why I make this point. But this is not that word. This is an oiling word. You have to oil the person, which is sounding slightly odd now, isn't it? But applying oil was something you did, generally speaking, in Bible times, to either soothe or to refresh a person. Lots of examples of that, aren't there? Often these oils were mixed with fragrant spices. It was a lovely thing. This is what the Good Samaritan does in the parable Jesus told you, remember? He found this badly beaten man by the side of the road, and we read that he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. There's plenty of other references in the Old Testament to the Balm of Gilead, for example, or oiling, putting oil on wounds. Applying soothing oil to the sick individual is going to, do, it's going to show genuine love. And I think that's why this is put here. It's an expression of love, isn't it? Care for their well-being. Do you remember James's, the reason I, I go down that line, do you remember James's harsh rebuke in chapter 2? He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. By applying oil to the one on the sickbed, practical love is expressed here, and it is done in the name of the Lord. So that the ministry of the elders is not just a ministry of faith here at the bedside. It is faith and deeds together, not faith without deeds. You know, the equivalent today could be anything from you know, bringing some flowers or um, cooking them a meal, providing childcare. My particular tradition down in, in Kingston is whenever there was a couple who had, 
had a baby, I would go and buy a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts. That was my way of it's almost literally anointing uh, people with oil. I think it's a lovely thing to it refreshes. You see, lo- the eyes light up in uh, millennials when they get given a box of Krispy Kreme donuts. But the important thing, though, is what James says next. Take a look at it. See, the oil has nothing to do with the healing. Rather, it is, according to James, the prayer offered in faith that will make the sick person well. Or even to be more explicit, look look at what's next. The Lord will raise him up. Not the oil, not the Krispy Kreme donuts. The Lord will. Prayer will be effective. The Lord will lift him up. And in actual fact, that sentence is probably one of the most perplexing sentences in the passage. James tells us, in no uncertain terms, that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And here starts the debate. (laughs) What does that mean? What is, as the ESV puts it, the prayer of faith that will make the person well? Well, it cannot mean that as long as we pray right, as long as we pray with enough faith, God will heal. I don't think that's biblical at all. After all, no one was more likely to get that right than the Apostle Paul, was he? And yet, according to 2 Timothy 4.20, he had to leave a ministry team member, Trophimus, sick in Miletus, he says. I I had to desert him. Useful member of my team, I had to leave him there. In Philippians chapter 2, he talks about Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was ill and almost died. Why didn't Paul do something about it? And he reminds the Galatians, actually, in Galatians chapter 4, he says to them, as you know, it's because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, even though my illness was a trial to you. You didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. In fact, Paul himself struggled with an ailment that he calls his thorn in the flesh, doesn't he? Which he says he asked the Lord three times to take from him. But instead, God replies, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. The truth of the matter is that God does not always heal. And it's not about getting the right formula of words or faith. Sometimes God has a wiser and better plan. Don't we know that? So what is the prayer of faith that will make the sick person well? Do you see the problem? Well, our time is short. (laughs) And the riddle of prayer is complex. But let me give you a concise answer. I found this quite a a helpful little soundbite here from Kent Hughes. He writes this. Listen, we are truly able to pray the prayer of faith only when we are sure it is God's will. I hope that doesn't sound like a cop-out to you. I think there's a lot in that sentence. The prayer of faith is not something you can manufacture by saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I double believe. No, it, it is a gift from God. Kent Hughes continues, he says, James is saying that when the elders have the spirit-wrought conviction that the Lord will heal the one being prayed for, 
they will pray the prayer of faith and the sick will be healed. Not only that, but if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. That is, if the illness was due to personal sin, the healing will also signify that his or her sins are forgiven. I find that really helpful. Does it make sense? It seems that sometimes God will give us the spirit-inspired conviction that healing is his will. And that is when we pray a specific prayer of faith. But listen, either way, we should always be in prayer for our loved ones that they will be healed when they're sick. That's right, isn't it? And prayer always requires faith. We should pray with sincere pleading when we pray. And we should pray in the knowledge that God is perfectly able and that our prayers are effective. He will hear them. And we should not pray as if it's a fait accompli, like as if it's a foregone conclusion. You know, God's going to just do what God's going to do and it really doesn't matter what I pray. We should never pray like that. That is never modelled or encouraged in the Bible, is it? But, on the other hand, we should never pray presumptuously. Let me remind you that as James writes these verses about healing right here, the ink is not yet dry on the motto of chapter 4, verse 15. Do you remember where James says, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Well, that probably brings more questions than it answers. But thirdly, care for the sinner. Care for the sinner. Look at verse 16 with me. Therefore, says James, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Verse 16 can sound a little bit sort of Roman Catholic, right? Except that James does not tell us to go confess our sins to a priest or even to an elder, thank goodness. We are to confess our sins to each other. That's interesting. Well, this is not talking either about public confession of sins in the general setting of the church. This has happened in history and it has never ended well. As a rule of thumb, actually, Confession of your sin should go no wider than those who are directly involved. But rather, what's happening here is James is encouraging us to foster relationships within the church that can help us in our daily battle with sin and confession. It might be that you need to be reconciled privately to a brother or sister that you've offended. That might, that might need to be the case. You need to think about that wisely. It might be that you need to find a trusted brother or sister that you can confide in about a particular struggle that you have. That's a very healthy thing to do. Someone who can actually give you wisdom. Someone who can pray for you. I would just give a caveat on that and just say, don't make that a new believer. Go look for an experienced, wise person to confide in. Why this emphasis, though, on dealing with sin right here in the, in, in the passage? 
Well, I'm guessing it's because of what James says next. He says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If we want our prayers to be powerful and effective, they need to be backed up with a righteous life. Our sin or our lack of righteousness affects our prayer life, do you see? And if we're to be any use at all, we've got to have a healthy prayer life. Therefore, our righteousness is a critical issue. Without a righteous walk, our prayers are robbed of power. And let's be honest, actually, as a side note, if we don't deal with our sin, if we leave sin festering in our lives, the likelihood of us turning to prayer anyway become vanishingly small. Now, it is, of course, true, let me just state this categorically, that Christ, at our conversion, has given us his very own righteousness. It is imputed to us, as the reformers would say. That is, our status before God is righteous in Christ, and that never changes. But sin still affects our walk with him every day and our effectiveness. We become stained by, and I think the way to talk about it is actually by unrighteousness in our lives when sin is left to fester. So what are you and I to do? We are to confess our sin. We are to make that a habit. We are, we're not to leave it, but to repent and return to God as soon as we are aware of our sin. We need to rid ourselves of unrighteousness. Listen, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We should be quick, quick to that, shouldn't we? There's the offer, the open arms, quick to make use of it. If you've ever flown, and I guess most of us in this room will have been on an aeroplane, you'll be familiar with that safety demonstration. You remember the one that they do before takeoff, and they do the whole life jacket and passing the thing around. And we're told that if the cabin loses pressure, what's going to happen? Little things are going to drop down, aren't they? Little masks drop down from above you, from the ceiling. But... We're told over and over again, don't go and try and stick the mask on someone next to you until you've got it firmly on your own face, right? Likewise, before you go to help others with the sin in their lives, before you enter into that relationship, you need to deal with your own. You want to be effective and useful in the church. Confess your sin first. Before you attend to the speck in the eye of your neighbour, remove the plank from your own. The prayers of the righteous, of the righteous, are powerful and effective, and we should never doubt that. James goes on to tell us about Elijah. It's brilliant, isn't it? Have a look at down what he says about Elijah. Now, Elijah's a, a great character to bring in at this point. He's the prophet of prophets, isn't he? He's an absolute legend. He's the household name when it comes to prophets. He is synonymous with a close and faithful walk with God, a life full of signs and wonders. He, standing all alone, is up on Mount Carmel, him against 450 prophets of Baal, with God on his side. He fed the widow. He raised the dead. He called down fire from heaven. You can see why he's a legend. 
And rather than die, the cherry on the top, he doesn't even die. This man is swept up in a whirlwind and taken to heaven. Get all of that in your head. That's quite a character, isn't it? But look at what James says. He assures us he's a man just like us. Isn't that staggering? He's made of the same stuff as you and me at the end of the day. Just like us, he has fears and doubts, doesn't he? Just like us, us, he has to get on his knees and pray fervently. That's what he does. And do you remember him sending off his little, his little servant saying, go check the clouds, go check the clouds, and there he is praying fervently for the rain to start again? When he did pray, it opened and shut the heavens. Prayer is a mysterious and wonderful thing, isn't it? It's an awesome thing, prayer. God cannot be, this is the riddle, isn't it? He cannot be coerced by our prayers And yet, prayer moves the hand of omnipotent power. And so rightly, we have that little couplet, don't we? The devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And rightly so. Well, finally, care for the straying. Care for the straying. Let's just look at those last two verses. Verse 19, my brothers, says James, If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. James's aim in writing this letter, do you remember right at the beginning we talked about this? His aim in writing this letter or preaching the sermon that is within it is to bring those Christians who heard it, who read it, to maturity in Christ. He wants mature, useful, solid, well-grounded believers who are not just talking the talk, but walking the walk, living what they believe. That's been the flavour of the letter all the way through, hasn't he? And he's pummeled us to try and get some maturity going, get some growth going. No doubt, like the Apostle Paul... He would have said along with Paul, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. You feel that burden? In his closing remarks, James addresses the straying, wandering believer. The one who's walking away from the truth, inexplicably. Why would you do that? The one who is straying into sin and falsehood. Perhaps they've imbibed some dangerous teaching and they've they've latched onto it. And they're walking away from the gospel. About uh, ten years ago uh, at Contagious Camp, the youth camps that we do in the summer, I remember we had a meeting at the end of the week. And there must have been about 100 leaders at the, at the camp, all of whom came from youth groups in their church. And there's hundreds of youth there as well. And someone from the front just asked those leaders to stand up if they could think of a young person that they would really thought was going for Christ and then, and then had inexplicably just walked away and broken their hearts. And nearly every leader stood in that room. 
And I still meet um, individuals today who are now adults who are in that meeting, who are young people there. And it had a profound effect. They were really shaken to see that. But it's true, isn't it? Don't we all know people who've wandered away? Listen, an important part of our care for each other, says James, is we're alert to this. We see the signs early. We detect it. We run after the one who is straying away from God. The one who's slipping away from full commitment to the Lord. And we seek to bring them back, don't we? That's how we care for each other. Has their attendance waned? Have you not seen them for a few weeks? It does my heart good when people ask me, actually, I haven't seen so-and-so for a few weeks. It's good that you're noticing. Let's find out what's going on with them. When you talk to them, do they talk about everything except Christ? It's another sign, isn't it? Are they taken up with the things of this world and they're just being dragged away? Have you seen that in the lives of others? It is right to go after them. James would have us remember this in his last parting shot. This is how he's ending his letter. Listen, look at what he says. To turn back a sinner, to go after them and turn them back, is to save their life. Staggering, isn't it? What a ministry to have. And you can't do that without prayer. For the simple reason, it's only God who can turn a heart back, actually, isn't it? He's the only one who can actually save a life. Only the crucified and resurrected Christ can cover over a multitude of sins and make someone righteous. Yet here again, profoundest of mysteries, he uses normal people like you and me. So how will we respond to this whole book that James has given us to grow us? God uses people who have learned to walk with him in times of trouble and in times of joy. He uses those who are willing to serve others, to intercede for them on their knees. Those who are willing and quick to confess their own sins, who are concerned, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those who are vigilant and concerned enough to pursue those who stray. And brothers and sisters, that is church. That's church in all its glory, isn't it? Will we be like that as this book closes?